0: to rejoice in your Redeemer, to see Him as your greatest treasure, the wellspring of your soul, to trust in Him and have your soul be satisfied in Him alone. That's what it means to be a man or woman after God's own heart. And this is God's description of His servant David. The Bible talks more about David more than any other character in Scripture apart from Jesus Christ. David's faith and zeal made him the standard by which every king after him was measured. When you consider these facts, combined with God's own description of David twice in Scripture, you might get the sense that David was some kind of saintly superhero. But as Mark Boda points out in his book, After God's Own Heart, the Gospel According to David, quote, The Old Testament accentuates the fact that David had no part in engineering his rise to power. Unquote. God is the true hero of David's real life story, which begins in 1 Samuel 16. That's our primary text for today, but first I would invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, it's on page 867 in your pew Bible. Acts chapter 13. In this chapter, Paul provides a compact overview of Israel's history up to the time of David and David's connection to Jesus Christ. Beginning in the second half of verse 16, Paul says, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen, the God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, For forty years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. As Paul makes clear in this passage, God is the real hero, isn't he? God is the one who chose his people, who made them great, who led them, who rescued them, who defeated their enemies and gave them judges and prophets and kings. God removed the first king, Saul, the people's choice, and raised up a new king, David, his choice. And from this king, God brought his people the Savior, just as he promised. So Paul has packed about 2,000 years of redemptive history in about seven verses. And in doing so, Paul makes it clear that God is the primary mover in history. History is his story, and God is the almighty kingmaker. Bottom line is, people are ordinary. God is extraordinary. That is the theme of David's life, and it takes us to the transformative truth of today's sermon. God often uses the least likely to accomplish his purposes. That should encourage you. (laughs) God often uses the least likely to accomplish his purposes. The man after God's own heart... Turned out to be an unassuming boy. Only a boy named David. Please turn with me to 1 Samuel 16. It's on page 223 in your pew Bible. That's where David's biography begins. 1 Samuel 16. Please follow along as I read verses 1 to 13. The Lord said to Samuel... How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite "'Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do, "'and you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you.' "'Samuel did what the Lord commanded, and came to Bethlehem. "'The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, "'Do you come peaceably?' And he said, "'Peaceably. "'I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice.' And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brother's. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Let's pray. Lord, as we seek to unpack this beautiful text in your Word, I pray that you would give us eyes to hear, or eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to accept, believe, and obey what you have for us in your Word today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This narrative that we just read can be loosely divided into two segments. In verses 1 to 5, Samuel leaves his hometown in Ramah and goes to Bethlehem. And then in verses 6 to 13, while in Bethlehem, he anoints David as the next king of Israel. There's about a five-mile walk between Ramah and Bethlehem. So it was a short walk. Uh, comparatively speaking other places samuel has gone but this journey though short was most significant in the history of israel and in the course of these events as laid out in this chapter the lord has two messages for samuel that are ever relevant for us today point number one could be summed up stop mourning and get moving stop mourning and get moving Chapter 16 begins with a mild rebuke from the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? This beginning of chapter 16 picks up where chapter 15 left off on a very sad note. In the final two verses of chapter 15 we read, Then Samuel went to Ramah, And Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Clearly here there is a parting of the ways between the prophet Samuel and King Saul. His demise began back in chapter 13 and While we don't have time to cover Saul's life, we are kind of landing square in the middle of the book of 1 Samuel, so we do want to give a little backdrop. Saul's demise began in chapter 13 when he disobeyed the Lord by offering a sacrifice that only Samuel was authorized to do. We read there, and Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Then we see in the next chapter, Saul really begins to unravel. In chapter 14, he makes a rash vow and almost kills his own son, Jonathan, as a result. In chapter 15, Saul directly disobeys God once again by not killing the Amalekites, all of them, as an act of God's judgment for the way that they treated Israel when God delivered them from Egypt. Saul ended up sparing Agag, the king of the Amalekites, And so Samuel had to to do what Saul should have done. Samuel passed his sentence on King Agag. In 1 Samuel 15, verse 33, we read, Samuel says to Agag, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. That would be another great sermon right there, wouldn't it? After this graphic confrontation with Saul, Samuel goes back to his home in Ramah, and Saul goes back to his home in Gibeah. And as we read, Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul. And he was still grieving. At the start of chapter 16, after some time had passed, just how much time, we don't know. But it had been too long for him to mourn over Saul. And that's when God says to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? God was telling Samuel on this occasion, Samuel, it's time to stop mourning and get moving. Now, I want to stay, say that Scripture says there is a time to mourn. And it was appropriate for Samuel to mourn for a time. The text makes it clear that Samuel mourned for Saul. I'm sure Samuel thought back to when he saw Saul for the first time, back in 1 Samuel 9. When he first saw Saul and the Lord revealed to Samuel That's the man that I told you about. He will rule my people. We read in that chapter that on that very day, Samuel threw a feast and invited 30 leaders to join him, 30 guests to celebrate the occasion. He seated Saul at the head of the table as the guest of honor, gave him the best cut of meat. It was a delightful day. Saul was going to be Israel's first king, and he showed such promise. But his rebellion and his disobedience cost him the throne. And what did this mean for the people of Israel, who had requested a king in the first place? Without a godly leader, the nation might self-destruct. There could be infighting among the tribes, or worse, the enemies of the Lord could come against his people and attack them while they were vulnerable without a king. All this would have caused Samuel much consternation, much grief. Samuel grieved over Saul. And I think it's appropriate to just stop here before we get into the anointing of David and ask ourselves, do we ever grieve over the sins of others? And how their sins adversely affect the well-being of God's people? Samuel wasn't grieving over a bad golf score, (laughs) over the rise of inflation. He wasn't grieving because someone swiped his car. He was distressed over the direction of Saul's life and how that negatively influenced the people of Israel. Samuel mourned over the tragic consequences of Saul's sin to him, to his family, to his people. Do we ever mourn over such matters? Do we ever mourn over things apart from our own comfort and security? And this Samuel, I think, is a very good example for us. It was appropriate for Samuel to mourn, but now it was time to move because God had rejected Saul and had already selected a new leader. The Lord told Samuel, Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. This verse reminds us that when everything else seems to be falling apart, God is still in control. God has a plan. There is no plan B. It's always plan A with God. God always provides for his people. Notice that the Lord says, I have have provided for myself a king. This contrasts with what we read back in 1 Samuel 8.22, where the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the people's voice and make them a king. See the contrast? I have provided for myself a king versus make them the people the king, a king. Saul was the people's choice. But David was God's choice. In verse 3, God says to Samuel, I will show you what you shall do. And the I is emphatic. I will show you what you are to do. In verse 4 says, Samuel did what the Lord commanded. Don't skip too quickly over that sentence. The Lord said, I will show you what you are to do. And then Samuel did what the Lord commanded. And therein lay Samuel's greatness. The late Old Testament scholar Joyce Baldwin wrote, His greatness lay not in the originality of his ideas or the initiatives that he took, but in carrying out the instruction of the Lord, what mattered was simple obedience. And it was Saul's failure to follow this principle, simple obedience, that cost him his kingship. It is many a pastor's failure to follow the simple principle, obedience, that has cost him his ministry. It has cost many a Christian his or her testimony, their integrity, their reputation, their respectability, their usefulness. Because they simply didn't obey the Lord. Yesterday, Pastor Mike stopped by the office to give me an update on his and Kira's daughter, Verity, who has been in strong hospital since her birth last Sunday. I asked Mike if he had any specific prayer requests for him and Kiera. Of course we were praying for Verity, but I said, Mike, there's one request that we could lift up on behalf of you and Kiera. What would it be? Mike, who had really no context of where I was at in the midst of my study, said, Pastor Matt, our request is that pray that we would trust and obey. Pray that we would trust and obey. No matter what we're going through, no matter what the situation, that is always the call for us as Christians to trust God and obey Him. It's worth noting that Samuel, on this occasion, was obeying the Lord at great risk, humanly speaking. Notice what Samuel said. If Saul gets wind of this, I'm a dead man. He'll kill me. So God told Samuel to take a heifer with him to Bethlehem and say that he had come to sacrifice to the Lord. That was true. If Saul did get wind of it, that was true. What Saul wouldn't know is that only a select few would be invited to this feast where Samuel would anoint Israel's next king. When Samuel showed up, the elders of the city came trembling, asking Samuel, Do you come peaceably? You might wonder why did they ask Samuel that? And I'm mindful of the fact he had just hacked Agag to pieces. They might have been a little nervous. Have the prophet of the Lord discovered some injustice or wickedness going on in Bethlehem that we don't know about? Has he come for a disciplinary purpose? Uh, Is that a sword we see? Oh, it's a cow. I think we're okay. Samuel says, no, all is good. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. I'm actually going to hack this cow to pieces so that we can eat him and feast. So come, purify yourselves. Come with me to the sacrifice. Then Samuel performs the purification rite for Jesse and his sons and invites them to the sacrificial feast as well. So chapter 16 begins with Samuel mourning, but now he's on the move, following God's lead. And he's bringing others along with him. I thought, you know, just as one person's disobedience can have disastrous consequences... So one person's obedience can do a world of good. Can make an eternal difference. Can change the course of history. And don't we see this ultimately in the negative example of Adam and the positive example of Jesus Christ? Paul writes in Romans 5:19, because one person disobeyed God, Adam, many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, that is Jesus, many will be made righteous. Jesus said in John four thirty four, my food, what nourishes me, what I feast on, is doing the will of my Father who sent me and to accomplish His work. That's what I'm about. And that's what Samuel was doing in Bethlehem. He was accomplishing God's work. He was doing what God told him to do. He was fulfilling God's mission for him. Samuel was a faithful prophet, a dedicated servant of the Lord. And yet, he still had another lesson to learn. God had a second message for Samuel, one that is ever applicable for us today. Number two. Stop judging by appearances and develop a God perspective. Stop judging by appearances and develop a God perspective. Look at 1 Samuel 16, verses 6 and 7. One day, that is, Jesse and his sons came, he, that is, Samuel, looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. (laughs) How easy it is for us to make the same mistakes that got us into trouble in the first place. When God gave the people the king that they wanted, God gave them Saul, who was described as being the most handsome man in Israel, head and shoulders above all the rest in the land. Dale Davis writes, Eliab is created in Saul's image, after his likeness. If Yahweh had not chosen the king, Israel would have suffered Saul, act two. In fact, in the next chapter, we'll actually see that Eliab, like Saul, had a quick temper. And he was easily overcome by envy. But at the same time, we should not also conclude from 1 Samuel 16, 7, that God opposes good-looking people and never uses them. After all, Scripture says, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. That means he was well-built and good-looking. That's why Potiphar's wife wanted to seduce him. And yet Joseph was obedient to God and was used greatly by God. Same was true as David. We've already read in chapter 12, which we'll get to again in a moment, that he was ruddy and handsome with beautiful eyes. The point is that a person's appearance has nothing to do with his or her suitability for service or capacity for success in the Lord's eyes. People tend to judge others by their outward appearance, but God is looking at the heart. That's what matters to Him. And this, again, should be immensely encouraging for us. Because let's face it, most of us are pretty average people. Most of us were never all-American athletes in high school or college or homecoming queen, or valedictorian, or voted most likely to succeed. And even those of us who were should remember that God is not impressed by such things. And the externals tarnish pretty quickly. I was reading yesterday about uh, Howard Hendricks, who has been with the Lord almost 10 years now, but... For over 50 years, he was a beloved professor at Dallas Theological Seminary and a very popular conference speaker. And about the time that he was growing completely bald, he got asked to speak at a men's meeting in California. And uh, when he got up to speak, he looked out over the crowd and he told the men, I feel very much at home with you guys, because I don't think I've ever seen so many bald heads in one gathering. And then he said, I have learned that those who bald in the front, bald that way because they're thinkers. Some of the guys went, oh, all right. He goes, and I've learned that uh, guys that tend to bald in the back, bald that way because they're lovers. Some guys are like, oh, yeah, all right, Yeah. And he goes, but those of us who bald in both the front and the back, kind of bald all the way around, are bald that way because we think we're lovers. (laughs) Now my guess is that Eliab still had a full set of hair and was tall and strong and good looking. Samuel thought, this is the guy. This has got to be God's pick. But God said, Samuel... Looks aren't everything. Don't be impressed by how tall or handsome this guy is, because I've already rejected him. You're focused on his looks and his height, but I'm looking at his heart. Samuel, that's what matters to me. Look at verses 8 to 12. 1 Samuel 16, verses 8 to 12. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. And I want us to understand what's happening here. Uh, Son after son after son passes before Samuel, but none of them are the Lord's pick. How many sons passed before Samuel on this occasion? Seven. And in Scripture, seven almost always represents completion or wholeness. So it's suggesting that Samuel, humanly speaking, had exhausted all the possibilities. But wait. The youngest son. The one that was neglected. The one everybody else forgot about was out in the field tending the sheep. He nearly got overlooked. Think about that. Israel's greatest king nearly got overlooked. Even his own father didn't think of him as a possibility because even Jesse was caught up in Israel's conception of what made a great king. But thank God, God didn't overlook him. For the eyes of the Lord roam throughout the earth to show himself strong for those who are wholeheartedly devoted to him. This is the Lord's declaration. I will look favorably on this kind of person, one who is humble, submissive in spirit, and trembles at my word. In other words, a man or woman after God's own heart. The Lord has a way of choosing people that others see as the least likely. When each of Jesse's sons passed before Samuel, the Lord said, Not this one, neither this one, not these. But as soon as they brought David to Samuel, the Lord said, Arise, anoint him. This is the one. Now David was the eighth son of Jesse. And in Scripture, the number eight represents a new beginning. Think about it. Even our calendar operates this way. A week is seven days, and the eighth day is the beginning of another week. A fresh beginning. Look at verse 13. 1 Samuel sixteen thirteen. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. This is the first time that David is mentioned by name. And this act of anointing is linked to divine blessing and spiritual empowerment. We see this connection in Isaiah 61 which says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me, For the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted, to proclaim that captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. He has sent me to tell those who mourn that the time of the Lord's favor has come. Jesus quotes this very passage in Luke 4 and says, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing." This took place after Jesus' anointing. In the previous chapter when the Holy Spirit descended on him at his baptism. And a voice from heaven said, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. This is after Jesus' overcoming of the devil's temptations in the wilderness. And we read after that that he returned in the power of the Holy Spirit to Galilee. So we are right to see David's anointing as foreshadowing the anointing of his descendant, the Lord Jesus, who would be be the ultimate king, who would conquer death, conquer sin, conquer Satan, and bring God's salvation to the world and and establish God's universal reign over all the earth. In fact, the Hebrew word for Messiah literally means the anointed one. And yet, let's think for a moment about Jesus. Wasn't he, like David, deemed the least likely to accomplish God's purpose in the eyes of others? He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Isaiah 53. David got overlooked initially because he didn't look the part of a king. And so did Jesus as the ultimate king. Because he did not appear the way that people were expecting. In fact, he was crucified as a criminal. Hung upon a cross. And Yet the scripture says that this happened to him for our sakes. That Jesus suffered, died, and rose again for us so that we might be forgiven of our sins. Our trespasses against God so that we might rise to new life. So that we might be reconciled to God and have eternal life. The only way Samuel recognized David as God's chosen one is how? God revealed it to him. God said, this is the one. And if we are to recognize Jesus as the true Messiah, the Savior of the world, the King of kings and Lord of lords, God must open the eyes of our hearts to see Jesus for who he really is. The way that Jesus has been made known to us in the scriptures. Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure, all things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Matthew eleven twenty five to 27 So if you are sitting here today, and you recognize Jesus for who He really is, the Son of God and Savior of the world, and you have put your trust in Him for your salvation, praise God because He has opened the eyes of your heart to see Jesus for who He really is. God often chooses and uses the least likely to accomplish His purposes. And brothers and sisters, that is us. God help us to develop a God perspective because only as we see Jesus for who He is, can we see ourselves for who we are and others in the right way? Earlier in our service, we read 1 Corinthians 1, and part of that passage was verses 26 to 29, a text that actually helps us to stop judging by appearances and to develop a God perspective. I love Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of these verses. He says, Take a good look, friends, at who you were when you got called into this life. I don't see many of the brightest and best among you, not many influential, not many from high society families. Isn't it obvious that God deliberately chose men and women that the culture overlooks and exploits and abuses, chose these nobodies to expose the hollow pretensions of the somebodies? That makes it quite clear that none of you can get by with blowing your own horn before God. Everything that we have, right thinking and right living, a clean slate and a fresh start comes from God by way of Jesus Christ. And that's why we have the saying, if you're going to blow a horn, blow a trumpet for God. God often uses the least likely folks like us to accomplish his purposes. That was the theme of David's life, as we shall see. He was an ordinary man who served an extraordinary God. A God whose eyes still roam throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are fully devoted to him. Let's pray. Father we thank you for the life of David and how his biography begins here in 1st Samuel 16. We pray that the lessons that you taught your servant Samuel in that experience would be lessons that your holy spirit impress upon us today. Oh, Father, we pray that your Spirit would continue to open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things in your Word. I pray, Lord, for anyone that might be recognizing Jesus for the first time as the great King, the true Messiah, the Savior of the world, will put their trust in Him for salvation. And those of us who have already believed in the Lord would appreciate how He uses the likes of us to accomplish His purpose. Father, I pray that you would remove pride from our hearts and give us nothing there but humility and gratitude for the one who loved us, who called us to himself and gave us new life in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.